Hi, I'm Jules van Binsberg and a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Jonathan Burke, a finance professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we are going to talk about how do you accumulate your wealth over your life cycle, particularly with a retirement objective in mind. So we're going to talk about things like how much money should you be putting away every year and what are reasonable rates of return on your investments so that you can achieve a particular retirement goal that you have in mind, say retiring at 45 or at 55 or at 65. And so that is what today's episode is on. Just as a reminder, if you go to the link in the show notes, you can click there and you can submit ideas for big problems that you think should be covered in future episodes of All Else Equal. So if you have a good idea for an episode, please click on the link in the show notes and fill out your idea there. So Jules, I also like the idea of what we're going to do today because I think it illustrates a pretty productive way to approach an economic decision. So in this case, the economic decision is, how do I save for retirement? And the best way to approach a complicated decision is to simplify the decision. And by doing that, get a handle on exactly what the important inputs are that determine the decision. So what we're gonna do today is think about a simple economic model And once we've explained the economic model, we can use the economic model to figure out what are the implications of saving for retirement. As I like to say to my students, an economic model is really just a way of making an argument. In other words, we're not physicists. No economic model is going to work like a physics model. So then why do economists and practitioners build models? It's to make an argument. If the model is consistent, then we know the argument is consistent. And so then the question is, what assumptions lead to what conclusion? So really, an economic model is all about the assumptions. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. The other thing we're going to do is simplify the problem in the sense that we're not going to talk about the best portfolio to hold, like the ratio of stocks to bonds to hold, because that is another episode all to itself. So today we're going to step away from the best investment strategy and just concentrate on the question of how much money do you need to save in order to retire? All right. So then let's lay out the basic ingredients of the model. And after we've set up the model and see what it implies, we can debate each of these assumptions in turn. But here are the basic ingredients. First, you are going to be working for a certain period of time. That certain period of time can be 20 years, 30 years, or 40 years. Let's start off with the simple assumption that you start working at 25, you work for 40 years, and you retire at 65. Then at age 65, you're going to retire and you will have to live off your retirement savings for the next 20 years. That is between 65 and 85. Now, during the 40 years that you work, you're going to be putting a fraction of your income into your retirement savings account. That retirement savings account is going to be invested in some investment vehicle that's going to deliver a certain percentage real return per year. And when we say real return, we mean the return that you make after correcting for inflation. So if you make 5% nominal and the inflation rate is 3%, then your real return is 2% per year. And so now the key question that we need to ask is, which fraction of your income should you be putting away in the 40 years that you're working? 
But this, of course, depends on how much you want to consume in retirement. A common assumption is that in retirement, you want to consume 70% of your last earned salary, but, and this is important, it is the salary left after the contributions for retirement have already been made. So if you make $100,000 in the year before retirement and you are putting away 20% of your income to save for retirement, that means that you had $80,000 left. And so then what you want to consume during retirement is 70% of that 80,000 number. So that's 56,000 per year. And then the last component of the model is what about the fact that your income is likely to grow over your life cycle? So if you look at the data, what you find is the median person's income grows by about 1.5% a year, and the 95th percentile grows at something like 5% a year. So we need to make an assumption. So let's just assume that your income will grow at some rate over your life cycle. And those, I think, are the basic elements of the model. So now let's see if we solve that model and look at the numbers. What's one of the most common advice that we see will lead to. So a lot of financial advisors will tell clients something like, just put away 10% of your income. So the fraction that you save is 10% of your income. And what you then find is, is that if you want to have enough money to retire on so that you can consume 70% of your post-contribution income in retirement, then you will have to assume that you can make 5% in real terms per year assuming an average income growth of 1.5%. And again, we're working under the assumption that you will work for 40 years between 25 and 65 and retire for the 20 years after. Now, the question is, is that realistic? Just to be clear on the assumption of how much you're going to retire on. So if you are making $100 and you're putting $20 into your retirement savings account, then what we're saying is you're going to live on 70% of the $80. Yeah. So given that assumption, as Jules pointed out, you need a 5% real return, which is an exceptionally high number. To put this in perspective, if you look at the real return on tips, which would be a riskless investment in US treasuries, real return on tips really exceed 2%. So to expect a return of 5% is exceptionally optimistic. Well, so one way in which we can get that return up would be to take more risk. And as we said, risk will be discussed in a different episode. But let's just say one short thing about it. If you take a lot of risk, that also means that the distribution of possible outcomes you're going to get is going to be quite wide. And therefore, you will have to be willing to live with the possibility that you need to live off much less than that 70% number that we've just mentioned. And so let's not go into that in this episode, but risk in the end is something we will not be able to avoid. We will have to have that discussion at some point. And we will, but the point is, I don't like it when financial advisors say, oh, we'll just put it in the stock market and you can earn a higher return. I mean, return doesn't come for free. If you want to put it in the stock market, then you have to entertain the possibility of losses and therefore you won't have enough money to retire on. And one of the things the Great Recession, the crash of 2007, that annoys me is everybody's like, act as a complete surprise. What? The stock market could go down? I mean, what? I think the biggest problem was people were lulled into believing that you could just get these higher returns on the stock market without ever encountering any risk. So the summary is simply this. If you don't make sure that you're going to have the money that we're planning for, you will have to invest it 
in a risk-free investment alternative. If you're going to take more risk, yes, your average return will go up, but it also means you'll have to deal with that. And indeed, return doesn't come for free. If you want to invest all your money in the stock market, be prepared to have to do it much less. So if we then take a realistic real return of 2%, then what you need to save for retirement is twice. In other words, more like 20% of your income you have to put into retirement. So I think one of the first insights this model delivers is if you really want to retire at something like 70% of your post-retirement income, it's going to cost you at least 20% a year of money that you need to put into savings. Now, if real returns are zero, which is the number that we had for quite a bit, particularly during the COVID period, right? I mean, real rates of return were exceptionally low. If you have no real return, then you have to triple that. So you have to put away 30%. So now let's talk a bit about growth, Jonathan. We have a variation in the population, how quickly your earnings will grow. As we said, particularly for our listeners, it's probably closer to the higher end of the distribution. So say that growth rates are around 5%. Now, our intuition would be, and I think a lot of people will have that intuition, is how can growth in your income in any way be bad? Meaning, if my income grows faster, shouldn't that make it much easier to reach my retirement goal? But it's not quite that simple. Yeah, the issue is... Since your retirement is a function of your final income, the more your income grows, the more you have to put away. This is basically a habit formation model that says, when I get used to being rich, I want to stay rich. And that means you have to put more away, not less away. So let's just give you an example. Let's go back to the 5% real return calculation where the amount you have to put away is 10%. If I change the rate of growth from 1.5% to 5%, so the rate of growth of your income, then what you find is instead of having to put 10% away, you have to put 20% away of your income. In other words, because you have so much more consumption when you retire, you have to put away much more in order to maintain that level of assumption. And if we drop the return from a 5% real, which none of us think is realistic, to a 2% real, then you have to save almost a third of your income. Now, of course, many people would say, well, when you've got 5% growth rates in your income, you'll be exceptionally wealthy when it comes time to retire, and therefore you can take a hit to your retirement easier. And so that is perhaps true, but it goes against the idea that we don't like to take a hit to our consumption. And it illustrates another point, right, which is, from a retirement point of view, there is value to not getting used to too lavish a lifestyle too quickly, right? So there is this whole movement going on now, and I don't know whether you've heard about it, where people say, let me work really hard, consume very little, save a very large fraction of my income, and then retire early. And of course, this approach helps in two ways. First, because you save more, a very large fraction, you build up your savings quicker, but secondly, you don't have this habit formation effect that you described because you learn to live off a very low consumption level. And therefore, in retirement, you can continue that same lifestyle that you had during those working years quite easily. You know, this is really a more general point. One of the biggest beefs I have with retirement advice is when people say, you should start saving for retirement as early as possible. Now, ignoring the habit formation, 
just let's think about this. If you're saving early and there's income growth, what you're doing is you're moving money from your poor state, in other words, early in your life when you don't earn a lot, to your rich state, which is late in life when you have a lot of money. We don't often think that's a good idea to move money from your poor state to your rich state. So the basic idea that you should start early saving for retirement, I think we have to think about carefully. And especially now, let's put it into the context of habit formation and getting used to consuming. I actually think the advice is flat out wrong. So John, there's two arguments to add to that, one on each side of the argument, right? So the first one is this, as you grow your income over time, what is the normal standard of living of the people around you is also going to be growing, right? So in other words, the general standard of living of the economy is going up. And so I'm not sure that you want to stay behind in that as you go over time. You want to keep up. So we call this external habit formation. You want to keep up with the rest of society, which means that you do want to be able to grow your consumption pattern over time. And so that is probably something that our model misses a little bit out on because we're going to be assuming also that through the entire time of your retirement, you're going to be consuming the same amount. And so we have to think that through a little more perhaps. The other thing is, of course, the fact that what you're getting used to is that over time, as you consume more, you don't want to scale back on that consumption. All the evidence suggests that it's incredibly painful for people to scale back their consumption levels. And by the way, I'm not so sure that I agree with you that that is all that different for richer people than for other people. I think that getting used to lifestyles happens to everybody really quickly and it becomes normal before you know it. And scaling back is just painful for everybody. Yeah, I agree, Jules. But I also disagree with you that these two things actually work against each other. And I'll tell you why. I think who you hang out with is a function of what you make and what you choose to spend. So that you can control how much you need for retirement by choosing a lifestyle that the people around you choose. Agreed. So in other words, I would say rather than start saving early, don't start saving early, but as your income grows, you put more and more into retirement So your after-retirement income doesn't grow as much, which means when it comes time for retirement, you haven't built up this exceedingly high living standard that you then have to keep to. So I would say you can achieve both by putting more away in retirement in the rich state. You can both lower your internal habit formation, since you're not spending as much, you haven't gotten used to a lavish lifestyle. But also, because you're not leading a lavish lifestyle, you don't even pick friends that have had a lavish lifestyle. Yes, I see your argument. Although I think that, you know, the way that we pick friends to let that depend on your retirement contributions seems a bit... No, no, no. On your lifestyle, not your retirement contributions, on your lifestyle, I think. Agreed, agreed. But so I think the important point here is to really understand the implications for retirement on how much you choose to spend on your lifestyle versus what you choose to save. The other thing that, you know, you talk about a lot, Jules, is in this model, we've assumed 40-20. We have assumed that the day of retirement is fixed. But of course, that's not true. Yeah, there are a bunch of different things that we can discuss here. The first one is, what if you simply want to work for fewer years? And we already discussed that a little bit. That's one. 
But the other one that we need to discuss, which I think is a hugely undervalued point, is the following. Re-entering the workforce after you've been out of it is a very difficult thing to do. And so in the economics literature, we call this an irreversible decision. Now, before you take an irreversible decision, you better be sure that this is the right decision because you are giving up value by pulling that trigger. To say it differently, if you are not committed to, say, retiring when you're 65, and you're willing to just see how things are by the time you're 65, and depending on your wealth situation, you simply decide to retire later, or maybe if you've reached a retirement goal better, you can retire earlier than 65. By making this a flexible thing, I think we can add a lot of value to people's lives. And therefore, I've always been surprised that in many countries and in many pension systems, it's being presented as if being able to retire at 65 is somehow a good thing, that that's a fixed number that everybody can focus on, and that there's no negotiation about where that number exactly is. We're now talking about in European countries to make it from 65 to 67. And you can see, for example, in France, how many protests that leads to. But the whole idea that this needs to be a mandatory fixed number I've always found that strange. And also, Jules, going back to our discussion of your lifestyle, you know, some people may say to me, look, Jonathan, I want to have a fancy lifestyle. The way I'm going to finance it is I'm just not going to retire. Right? I want to live, work hard and play hard. And I think you're right. People have the choice to make that. So, of course, if you retire later, you have much fewer years in retirement to finance, and therefore you can have a bigger lifestyle. And you don't have to put a third of your money away. So I think it's very important to understand that people approach the problem differently and have one size fits all is, I think, a mistake. And as you say, it ignores the real option. I mean, that's the other thing. You could imagine that although you've got an average growth rate in income, for many people, the actual growth rate of the income is very uncertain, right? Some people make it well, some people don't. And so working on averages is in some way hiding the huge role of this uncertainty. One way of dealing with that uncertainty, one way with dealing with that risk is to understand that the point of retirement is a function of how well you do. For sure. If you happen to do really well, you get to retire early if that's what you want to do. And if you happen to do less well, well, you just have to work hard. No, for sure. So one movement that I think you've seen a lot is that the entire pension sector, even when it comes to with its defined contribution or defined benefit, seems to be focused on the desire to do this uniformization, where we have the same target date fund or the same pension plan or the same investment strategy or the same contribution rate or the same retirement age. Everything is about making everything the same for everybody. Whereas I think that depending on the profession that you have, depending on the success that you have throughout your lifetime, depending on the preference that you have for the social context that you get out of work relative to other jobs, I think there's huge heterogeneity that is being ignored. And so I think that maybe the biggest takeaway of this episode is that this one size fits all is probably something that we should get off of. Well, you know, Jules, target date funds, and just for our listeners who don't know what a target date fund is, it's a fund where... You start with a lot of investments in equity and few investments in bonds. And then over your lifetime, the fund moves from equity to bonds. And this has become a hugely profitable sector for money management companies. And these were introduced during my lifetime as a finance professor. And I remember when they were introduced originally, I was 
very much against this, and I'm still very much against this, because there's no such thing as one size fits all. People have very different risk preferences. They have very different retirement preferences. And often, the target date funds are presented as one solution. And I think it's a huge mistake to approach retirement that way. And I think it's pretty self-serving in the industry to try to pretend that one size fits all. So one another example where I know, Jules, you have strong feelings, a one size fits all, are the pension contributions of companies, right? Yeah. So in the Netherlands, there was this whole debate on a reform of the pension system. And one key thing there was that a large group of people that were independent entrepreneurs were not yet in a pension plan. And so the new law proposal had in it that what they wanted to achieve is that even people that work for themselves, so they're independent, they don't work as a worker for a company, that they still should be mandatorily participating in these pension arrangements. And I never quite understood why that's a sensible thing to do, particularly because, again, this comes to a large cross-sectional variation between people. Once we know that somebody wants to take a lot of risk, is interested in swinging for defenses by starting their own company, do you really want to force those people to not use all the money they have to try to make that work, but rather force them to take money out of that entrepreneurial activity and put it into a pension arrangement? Couldn't that potentially even lower the amount of entrepreneurial ideas and firm creation that we have in the economy by imposing such system-wide changes? Yeah, I mean, it just ignores the fact that people are different and there's one size that does not fit all. So that's, I would say, very bad public policy. The other thing I know you have strong feelings about is the mass contributions of employers, right? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about substituting money from poor states to rich states. And I think that that argument has a lot of bites, particularly for the people that really can't afford to make the contributions, right? So many employers have this matching plan. And the matching plan implies that if you contribute, say, 3%, then the employer will match it with 3%. But it also means that if you cannot make the 3% contribution, you don't lose out on 3% to your retirement contributions, you lose out on 6% of them. And so for those people that already have such low salaries that they're so liquidity constrained that they can actually not make that 3% contribution in the poor state, do we think it's good public policy to give the incentive to try to put that 3% away and only then match it? Don't get me wrong. We did a whole episode on incentives. I understand the power of incentives, but incentives only work when the person actually has a choice that they can make. If the choice is not really a choice, you can provide as much incentives as you want. And of course, you can just see it in the data, right? You can see that for the lowest earning groups that is already struggling to make ends meet, we're seeing that putting the incentive in place makes no difference. If putting the incentive in place makes no difference, then why are you putting it in place? You know, I always think about this in terms of buying a house. So, you know, there's huge transaction costs in terms of selling a house and buying another house. And so the optimal thing to do is to try to buy as big a house as you can so you can stay in the house for the longest amount of time. And if that's the optimal thing to do, given all the transaction costs of changing houses, never mind the human costs of moving and the fact that your kids have friends in the neighborhood, ignoring even those costs. If that's the optimal thing to do, you don't want to have to force people to put money into retirement, which lowers the size of the house they can buy initially. So again, this idea of one size fits all is a pernicious idea, which I think 
we really have to think about in terms of this public policy of how we approach the retirement decision. All right. So let's wrap up and let's talk about what I think are the key takeaways of the episode today. And I think several of these takeaways are actually non-trivial things. So the first one, which I think is an important one, is that getting used to a particular lifestyle implies that you need more money in retirement if you want to continue that lifestyle after retirement. So what we call habit formation. The second important insight, I think, is that rates of return are actually quite low right now, particularly in real terms. And so if you want to make retirement goals with a relatively high degree of certainty, the 10% number of savings that we had in place so far as the recommendation may actually be too low and numbers closer to 20 or 30% may be warranted. The third one is that retirement decisions, because they're irreversible, are not to be taken lightly. And so you give up what we call in finance real option value because returning into the labor force is very difficult after you have retired, particularly after you've been retired for, say, a year or two. And so maybe, therefore, particularly in countries that have part-time working arrangements, part-time retiring may be a better strategy so that you can scale back up your labor contract if it would be needed. And then finally, and I think we hammered this one a lot, is the one-size-fits-all, broadly speaking, in pension land may lead to not optimal outcomes. The last thing I would say is on the amount that retirement, where 10%, we're saying 10% is too low and you need close to 20%. I think many people would react by saying it's 20% of my income. I can't put, afford to put that aside. And I think my answer then is to say, okay, put 10% aside. But then if you put 10% aside, you should be accepting of the fact that you may not be able to retire as soon as you think you'll be able to retire. Yes. That the 40-20 rule is probably not right. I mean, we have medical advances, so you can. it's more like a 50-10 rule that you may have to do with. And again, the real option and the flexibility to retire is important. Like if you get to 65 and you're in very poor health, well, obviously it's going to be harder to work, but by the same token, you're probably not going to live as long. So there are these questions you can do later on in retirement. And so that allows you to put less money aside. So long as you understand, though, that the implication is that you're probably going to have to work longer. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcast. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.